All right. As some of you know, I just came back from a vacation with my family. So when I see the, this logo, I get like nightmares of packing bags and packing lots of things in small, confined, tight spaces, and then driving 12 hours down the East Coast to Virginia. Um, but we had a lovely vacation. We're thrilled to be back and thrilled to kick off this new series. So uh, one of my favorite preachers, he's not really a preacher, but we'll just call him that this morning, Jerry Seinfeld. You guys know Jerry Seinfeld? <laughs> In one of his little sermons, he, he makes this interesting point. And the one thing, obviously, if you like listening to Jerry Seinfeld like I do, he makes some really interesting points throughout all of his talks. But in this one in particular, he, he made an interesting point that I thought, that's so interesting. We need to do a whole series on this idea. And here's essentially what he says. He says, what's interesting about humanity, about humans, is that we're never satisfied where we are. Right? As soon as we get to where we are, our next thought is, what's next? What's coming? Like, like maybe some of you are feeling that way now. You got here, you got your pretzels and your peanuts, and now you're like, all right, I got to go. I, I got to go. I'm, I'm ready to go. You ever felt that way? Like we're, we're never just <sighs> satisfied. Wherever we get to, wherever we are, our constant thought, that kind of ringing in the back of your mind is, hey, what's next? Hey, what's coming up around the corner? I got to go. I got to go. I got to go. So as we dive into this series of pack your bags, here's, here's essentially what pack your bags is going to be. And I've got to put it on the screen and read it because it's really, really confusing. So here's what pack your bags is about. How to prepare to get to where you got to go or where you got to get to from where you currently are that you just got to from where you recently were. That's a little hard to remember, isn't it? You don't even remember where you were. That's the, the truth of it. <clears throat> so we're going to look at that in a, in a little more of a, a concise, maybe easier way to read, and, and that's this. Um, as we talk about pack your bags, here's what we're doing. We're going to talk about how to prepare for what's next. When we get this idea of pack your bags, how to prepare for what's next. Because what's tr truthfully, for some of us, we all have something coming up next, don't we? There's something coming up for all of us. It's, it could be a, a marriage coming up next. It could be uh, maybe, you know, we just had, your, if you're on social media, your, your social media account is probably full of everybody bringing their kids to the first day of school this week. That was the big coming up next last week. But it could be school. Maybe you're a high school student or you're in college and you're thinking about graduation. This is the year you get to graduate and, and it's, it's the big thing that's coming up around the corner. That's what's next is graduation. Maybe it's college. You're heading off to college this year or you have a a youngster headed off to college this year, one of your kids, and, and there's that, that little bit of excitement and turmoil and anxiety all at the same time. Maybe it's a wedding. Maybe the next thing coming up is you're getting married, and that's exciting, and that's nerve-wracking, and it adds a whole bunch of, of stress and interesting developments to your life. Maybe your kid's getting married, or your brother, or your sister, but <clears throat> maybe the wedding is the next thing that's coming up for you. Maybe it's a baby. <clears throat> maybe it's another baby. Right, You had one baby, and, and now you have two, and that kind of complicates things. And, and maybe you had two babies, and now you have three, or three, and now you have four. But, but whatever that might be, that's going to add some, some complications, and that's what's next. It could be nine months around the corner, or for some of you, it may just be a few weeks around the corner. Maybe it's, it's a new job, or you're headed to a new school. you got a promotion. You're, you're moving to a new city to start a new career, and you're really not sure. Maybe you just landed in the Bangor area, and... You're really not sure what to do, but you know this is kind of what's next for you, what's around the corner. Maybe it's the empty nest syndrome. Maybe, you know, you had kids, you had a family, and they've all kind of moved on. They went off and graduated and went to college and got married and are having kids, and now you're kind of left alone, and that's, that's the next phase of your life is, is how can I deal with this person next to me with all this time alone, right? And there's that little bit of fear in you. Maybe it's retirement. Maybe it's like retirement is the next big thing on your list. Not like it's a few years away but that it's the next big thing that you're going to tackle. Retirement. What do I do when I'm done working? How do I prepare for what's next? So what's next 
<clears throat> oftentimes creates uh, uh, some challenges for us. Right? Every time we, we take a step, and we're going to show you this little graph to kind of map it out for you, but anytime we face something that what's next, any, whatever that what next is for you, it creates a transition point. And whether this is a good transition, like you're starting a new job or a new career, or you're getting married or having a baby, or maybe it's, it's a difficult transition point, like your kids are leaving or you're facing retirement and you're really not sure what to do, regardless of what that is, it creates a change. And anytime we face change, there's stress. Whether, whether it's a good change or a bad change, whether it's a good transition or a bad transition, transitions always culminate in stress, don't they? <coughs> and if you don't believe me, have you ever a- talked to a mother of a bride who is so excited that her daughter's about to be married, but more stressed than she's ever been in her entire life? Have you ever talked to a new parent who can't wait to hold their new baby, but the idea of taking care of a new life just completely overwhelms and almost debilitates them? Regardless of what the transition is, regardless of, what next, of what's next might be for you, the truth is any transition creates change and any change creates stress. So our idea is how do we prepare for it? And really, I guess the question you would ask is could you prepare for it? Could you really prepare for what's coming next? You know, this, this season is a time of us uh, sending our kids off to school for the first time. And I heard this great story recently. Uh, one of those, like, legendary family stories that just kind of gets passed down all the time. Like, whenever you meet somebody, like, have I told you this story? You've got to hear this story. It's one of those kind of family stories. It's about a young boy named Jack who's going off to his first day of, of first grade. His parents are kind of nervous. They, they get the backpack on him. And you know what it's like. The backpack's almost bigger than he is. And he gets out of the car, and he's kind of wobbling his way. And you point him off in the direction of the door. And you're nervous. There's a bunch of anxiety on your end. And you just hope it goes well. Well, this happened to Jack. His parents drop him off, and they show him to the door, and he wobbles his way in. After school's done, they, they pick him up and put him in the car, and they bring him home, and they're so excited to ask the question, how did it go? How was your first day of school, Jack? Here's Jack's response, and they actually wrote this down because it's, it's one of those things you always want to remember. Here's how Jack responded. There were too many children, but it gets even better than that, and I didn't learn to read. Like, Mom and Dad, you told me when I went to first grade, I'd get to read. But there were too many kids. I didn't learn to read. So therefore, I'm not going back. So now his parents had to face, like, day two of a stressful day of trying to get Jack to acclimate to his first day, or rather his second day of first grade and transition into elementary school. But for, for all of us, no matter what that transition is, we kind of feel like Jack sometimes. No matter how good or how bad that transition can be, there's always something that creates some anxiety, that creates some stress that creates some change in us, and we're not thrilled about it. <clears throat> so, are there things that we can do to prepare for what's coming next? In, in light of all of that, in light of the idea that there are things, that, that there is something coming next, and, and there's something coming for all of us, whatever it might be, in, in light of that, can we prepare for it? Is it even possible to prepare for what's coming next? Is it even possible to prepare for what's coming up around the corner? And during these next few weeks, this is what we want to talk about. Is there a way for us to prepare for what's coming next, regardless of what it might be? That wedding, that new job, retirement, uh, transition at work, um, transition in in your home life. Someone's moving out or someone's moving in and you're having a new baby. Whatever that might be. Can you prepare yourself for what's coming up around the corner? Can you prepare yourself, really, for what's next? The first thing we have to realize is this, and I'm going to go over two things, but the first one I want you to remember is this, and and don't lose sight of this because this is going to be pretty fundamental for where we go in the future. Along with everything else that you pack as you're packing for what's next, you pack you. Along with everything else you're going to pack for this next transition for where you're going, you pack you, or, or essentially wherever you go, there you are. 
And here's why you need to remember this, because sometimes we, we kind of fool ourselves and deceive ourselves, don't we? We get this idea that, that, like, well, you know, once I start that new job, I'll, you know, fill in the blank. Or, or once I get married, then I'll start. Or once I move and, and, and I do this, then I'll stop doing. And it's almost this idea that, that this, this new view, this new change, this new transition is going to produce a new you. But the truth is, wherever you go, there you are. You don't escape yourself. And I think oftentimes, as people, we forget that. And we're always looking forward to what's next because we think when we get there, miraculously, I'm going to be this new person. And I'm going to have this new skill. And I'm going to be better. But you see, if, if we haven't prepared for that, we don't get that, do we? You see, there is no necessary correlation between ha uh, knowing what's next and being prepared for what's next. There's really no, no necessary correlation between knowing what's coming up, knowing what's next, and being prepared for what's next. And if, if you don't believe me, here, here's a great example of this. <clears throat> Every Saturday, or, uh, not just in Maine, but kind of around the world, and sometimes it happens on Fridays and Sundays, young men and young women get together, and they make vows to each other. Right? They make these vows that say, I do. But here's the truth, especially for those of us who are on like, this side of I do, um, they can't. They, right? And they, they don't realize that until they get married and they have some experience. And then they realize, like, this whole I do thing is really hard. I don't even know if I can. And then we're thinking about the person we said I do too. I don't even know if they can or I don't even know if they want to. Like, <clears throat> we, we've said something, but we haven't prepared for what's coming. So we've made a promise, but a promise without the preparation is really kind of null and void, isn't it? Preparation for what's next trumps a plan and trumps a promise every single time. But more often than not, we fail to prepare. More often than not, we kind of go with this attitude of, you know, once I get there, then I'll, I'll be, and then I'll do, and then I'll stop. And we make these promises to ourselves, and it, by doing so, we kind of deceive ourselves. And we're going to get some help today from a, a very famous man in the scriptures. His name's James. Um, I'd like to say that I was named after him, but I wasn't. I was named after a different James. James had a famous older brother. His older brother was named was Jesus. James was the, the little brother of Jesus. And just for a moment, imagine what it would be like growing up as the little brother of Jesus. It just amazes me. James wrote, wrote this book uh, in the New Testament, and he kind of talks about this whole idea of how to prepare for what's next. And here's what he says. And we're actually going to fast forward to the whole end of our discussion. What I'm going to read you now is what we're going to actually end up at today. And here's what he says. That if you do all these things that I'm teaching you to do, if you do all these things that I've told you to do, here's what he says at the end. You will be blessed in what you do. If you do all the things that I've told you to do in this next season, in this thing that you're about to move into, you will be blessed in what you do. There's something you can do now in this season to prepare for what's ahead of you in this next season. And now this is, as we're going to find out in the next few minutes, it is really, really important to me, especially to do with my childhood. But, but before we dive into all that and before we conclude our discussion, let's talk a little bit about what James is saying here. And in particular, let's talk about why what James is saying is so important. James grew up the brother of Jesus. James, and what's interesting about James, and you may have heard this before, James didn't believe in Jesus. He wasn't one of Jesus' disciples. He thought I had this crazy brother who thinks he's God and does these weird things. And then Jesus dies. And you can almost imagine James is saying, you know, what a waste. And then something interesting happens. James goes and has lunch with his dead brother who was resurrected. And James becomes a leader in the church of Jerusalem. Now let me ask you a question. What would your brother have to do to convince you that he's God? I think pretty much what Jesus did would cover it, right? Say I'm going to die, predict he's going to die, say in three days later we'll have lunch together, and then he does it. Okay, you might be who you say you are. 
James grew up the brother of Jesus, and here's what, what James is saying and what he's trying to teach us is that there is a way to prepare for what's coming. There is a way to live to prepare for what's next all the time so that you're not caught off guard, so that you don't make these empty promises, so that you don't deceive yourself into thinking you're something you're not or you're prepared for what's ahead and you're not. He wants to prepare you for what's coming in the future, and he says, here's how I want you to do it. He's going to dive in this. He says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Don't merely listen to the word. And the reason he says listens is that and kind of this culture and this generation, no one could read. And no one had the scriptures to read anyway. It's not like we walk around and, you know, you come here, we'll give you a free Bible every week. They didn't have Bibles. They didn't have text. What their, their teaching was, they had to sit and they had to listen in small groups and in people's homes and at the synagogues and at churches. They had to listen to people teach and speak to them about scriptures, about what Jesus did, about what Jesus said. But for us, we can kind of change this to say, don't merely read the word. Right, because we have access to it everywhere we go. It's not just a, a bound like a, in leather anymore. You can get paperback copies. You can get copies on your phone. You can download copies for your computer. We have access to it. You can listen to it on, on audio all the time. Don't merely listen, or for us, don't merely read the word and so deceive yourselves because it's not good enough to just read. It's not good enough to just listen. But how, like that's kind of what we do sometimes, don't we? We come into church and, you know, I, I went to church. I feel better about myself. Or I went for three weeks in a row. Like, I feel really good. Or I went this one time and, and I've been really faithful at small group. Or, or you know, I, I've listened to what the teacher said all the time. Or I couldn't make it and I downloaded the messages or I watched them online. Like, like I went and, and I listened. I opened my Bible and I read. And James is saying, if that's all there is, you're deceiving yourselves. If your entire kind of relationship with God, with this creator of the universe, with your heavenly father, with Jesus, his son, if all of that is kind of built on, well, I listened and I read or I watched, James says you're deceiving yourself because there is so much more to that. But that's often how we live. There's this thing that we do in America, and it might happen in Europe and Canada as well. I don't know because I'm not European or Canadian. Um, but I am American, and I think there's something that uh, Americans tend to do in this, in, in, in our, our cultures, uh, Christian culture in particular, where we kind of come to church, if we want to hear the preacher say something, and maybe he'll say something that's a little, a little moving, maybe makes me feel a little guilty, and then I feel good about myself, and I can go home, right? It's almost like our entire religious experience is about coming and feeling guilty, and then going home. I went, and I, you know, I felt a little uncomfortable, and that's great, and then I went home. I'll, I'll come back next week for my dose of guilt, but, but that's it, and then I'm going to go home. And it's like all, all of our religious experience kind of builds up to this moment of, of feeling uncomfortable or feeling guilty, but it never moves past that. And James is saying, if that's it for you, if all you do is listen, if all you do is hear, if all you do is watch, if all you do is feel a little bit uncomfortable and don't do anything else, you're deceiving yourself. So then what do we do? James said, well, I'm glad you asked. Here's what you do. Do what it says. It's like, that's such a novel concept. You mean I've got to put something into practice? I mean, it's not good enough to just listen. It's not good enough to just hear. It's not good enough to just watch. I've got to do what it says. Like, like maybe then I'll see the change. Yeah. It's not good enough just to listen. You've got to do what it says. James is going, too many of you listen, too many of you hear, too many of you watch, not enough of you practice. 
The goal isn't for us to feel bad about ourselves. The goal isn't for us to have another kind of religious experience where we come and we feel guilty and we feel uncomfortable when we go home. The goal for us is to change. So he goes on and he says this, anyone, that would be you, that would be me, anyone who listens to these words but does not do what it says. And then he gives this incredible illustration. I think it might be the best illustration in all of the New Testament, maybe even all of the Bible. He gives this incredible illustration. He says, anyone who listens to these words but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at their face in a mirror and after looking at himself or after looking at herself, goes away and immediately forget what he looks like. It's like, here's this point. He says, it's like when you listen to scripture, you're like waking up in the morning, you walk in and you look at yourself in the mirror and, and, and fe- you, know, you guys are anything like me in the morning. It's like, whoa, how did that happen? <clears throat> and then you leave and you go to work. And you leave and you go to your job. But we don't do that, do we? Well, when we look in the mirror, what do we do? We, we, we see things that need to be changed and what do we do? We change them, right? You brush your teeth and hopefully you brush your hair and and put in contacts, or, you know, maybe some of you guys need to jump in the shower and use a scrub brush. But regardless of that, we look in the mirror and we make a change, and here's why we do that. Because a mirror requires a response, doesn't it? Uh, Looking in a mirror requires a response. We don't look and and, and just kind of move on with our life. We look and we make a change. And, and, And I know some of you spend a lot of time doing that. Actually, I know exactly how much time it takes you to do that. You do it until it changes until it gets better, right? You look and you look in the mirror and you see what needs to change and you make some changes and you look again and you might make some more changes. And if you're, you're, you're you know, like most <clears throat> women, I'm not going to throw my wife under the bus, so I'll just throw all of the female gender under the bus. If you're like most women, you look at your makeup and you might need to make another change and maybe another change. And then you're running out the door and you look in the mirror again. It's like, no, I don't like that outfit. And you run back and you make another change. And then you're late for work and you're late for school. You're late for coffee or that date or whatever it might be. You, you stay and you make changes until it gets better. That's what we do because a mirror requires a response. We don't look in the mirror, get startled by how scary we look, and then run off to work. We make changes to it. And James says it's the same way with Scripture. It's the same way with with understanding these things that you're hearing and these things that that somebody's teaching you and the things that you're reading. You look at it, and it requires a response. It requires a change. But most of us never, ever do it. You see, here's another interesting truth. And this just isn't a Christian thing. This is really just, just a people thing. Getting your hair right has far less to do with the direction and quality of your life than getting your behavior right. Getting your hair right, getting your makeup right has actually far less to do with the direction and quality of your life than if you were getting your behavior right. Getting your outfit right, getting your makeup right has far less to do with the direction and quality of your life than getting your behavior right. You see, promotions, relationships, jobs, They're built on people's character. They're built on people's quality of character, not on their appearance. See, that's part of the problem. For some of us, we we spend so much time focusing on this outward appearance that we forget what's on the inside, right? And and I, I would guess that for a lot of you, you probably looked really good when you made your biggest regret in life. Actually, I bet that was part of the problem. I bet you probably looked too good. And then you went somewhere and you saw somebody else who looked too good. And then you made a great regret. Because we spend so much time worrying about the outside, we spend very little time worrying about the inside. And then we make our greatest regrets. 
And I'm not here to judge you because the truth is my greatest regrets happened the same way. We spend all this time worrying on the outside. We spend all this time fixing on the outside, never worrying about what's on the inside. James says it requires a change. It requires a change not on the outside, but on the inside. And and here's the truth for us, and and you probably know this now, and if you don't, I'll, I'll totally enlighten you on this. No one ever gets credit for looking in the mirror. Really, in the real world, no one ever gets credit for looking in the mirror. You can look in the mirror, be totally startled by your appearance, go to work, and your boss is going to say, you cannot meet with our clients looking like that. But, but I looked in the mirror. No one gets credit for looking in the mirror. It's looking in the mirror and making a change that counts. You see, but for so many of us in, in our faith, in our walk, in this kind of experiment of knowing God and getting to know his son Jesus, this is what we do. We come in and we, kinda, we, we look in the mirror, we see the scripture, we hear what's being taught, we watch the messages, but we don't do anything. You don't get credit for looking in the mirror. You get credit when something changes. See, for a lot of us, I hear this almost every time I, I preach, and you might hear it sitting there, but in, in these Christian circles, we have this thing I, I call it like the Christian moo. You, you may have heard it when someone's talking, they're making a really good point, and the head starts to shake, and the mmm. You heard that? If you're new here and you hear that, let me, let me tell you, you don't have to do that. You really don't have to do that to be a part of this, but we hear that a lot. We'll talk and make a good point, and, and, and you'll just see heads on. Mm, mm, that's right. And it, it's like, mm, I, I'm, I'm in agreement. I'm, I'm looking in the mirror. But that's as far as it goes. And James is saying, is that it? Is that the, the extension of what is to be done? It is for us simply to agree, to, to nod our head. Mm, that's right. And never do anything past that? Looking in the mirror and doing nothing with what you see is deceiving yourselves. And here's what's worse for us is we, we kind of think this and, and apply this to moving into this, this next phase or this next season or, or this, this whatever that next thing is for us. We'll look and we'll see what's coming, and be like, mm, but never do anything to get ready. Yep, I'm about to be married, mm, but I haven't done anything to prepare for it. I'm about to have a kid, but I have no idea what to do. This is how so many of us handle our lives. We see what's coming. We see that next season. But we've done nothing now to prepare for what's coming next. The good thing is James didn't leave us there. He says this. He goes on and he says, but. And now here's the big contrast. And he introduces uh, this habit. He introduces this idea of of what's going to take us through the rest of the series. He kind of prepares us and he wants to prepare you. He says this, but whoever, and again, that's all of us, whoever looks intently, And this Greek term here, this whole idea of kind of looking intently is to stop and to look. It's not like to just glaze off the corner or see in your periphery. It's it's not like, oh, I see something over there and I'm going to move on. He says when you stop and you kind of look intently, it's like you're getting down on one knee and you pick it up and you're staring at it and you're trying to figure out what it means. He says he who stops and looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom. And this whole idea of the perfect law, when we think of that, it's like really do rules ever give freedom? But you have to understand this. In, In this culture, as this is being written, This Jewish culture had like 631 laws. And at one point in Jesus' life, somebody comes along and they ask Jesus, hey Jesus, what's the most important law? And every good Jewish person had a a response. And it was always something that sounded like this, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. Everyone would kind of agree with that. They they would say, give you that answer in in, in some kind of response, maybe worded a little differently, but that was kind of the idea. So they get Jesus and say, hey Jesus, what's the greatest commandment in all the scripture? 
Jesus as a good Jewish boy. He says, to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. And everyone's kind of, hmm, that's right. And then Jesus says, and. They're like, whoa. And? And, he says, to love your neighbor as yourself. And now they're thinking, this is crazy. Like, this isn't the answer. This isn't the response. You've taken, you've taken all those 631 laws, and, and I know, we kind of knew what the top one was, and now you said this is like the second. He says, no, it's not the second. These are connected. This is, this is the greatest commandment, to love God and to love other people, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. That is the greatest commandment. That is it. That is the two things you need to be concerned about. And he completely kind of flipped the paradigm. And then to make matters even worse, <clears throat> on the, the last night when he's kind of with his disciples, they're kind of hanging out in the upper room eating the meal. He's about to be arrested. He's about to be wrongly uh, tried and then crucified. He gets them all, like, all together and he says, hey, this. He says, hey, guys, a new command I give you. And you can imagine what his disciples are thinking. Well, we have 631. What's 632? Add, add two more on. Who cares? A new command I give you, he says, to love each other as I have loved you. Now, now, imagine in that moment, he did something that was like almost completely blasphemous. He said, here's what I want you to do. All those 631, I, for a moment, just set them aside. It's not that those things are bad. It's not that we don't love those things, but I'm gonna fulfill all of those things with this, this new command. If you forget everything else, don't forget this. Love each other as I have loved you. And moments later, he's arrested and he's crucified for your sin. And then he comes to life three days later to set you free from it. So when we get the question, well, how would Jesus love us? Didn't he give his life? How would Jesus handle this? But didn't he love you enough even until death? You see, the perfect law that he's talking about is that. That you can love someone as I have loved you and in that kind of relationship, in that kind of love, with that kind of thought, whenever you're taking an action, to, to filter it through that lens, you experience freedom. And I know we don't always feel that way, do we? It doesn't feel like, like these things give us freedom. It doesn't feel like these things kind of give us liberty, but, but they do. And, and here's why it's, it's so deeply personal for me, because I, I was raised to believe this. Every time my father kind of cracked open the scriptures to teach us at home, he wasn't a pastor, but he loved God with all his heart. He still does. He just came back from his final missionary trip to, to uh, Africa. Every time he kind of cracked open the scripture to teach us things, it was always very practical. And one of the ones he taught me that I've been trying to teach you since we started was this. It was how we handle our money. And he said, here's what I want you to do, Jim. Every time you get paid, I want you to give, I want you to save, and I want you to live. I want you to give first, save second, and then live. And you know, when, when I was at like 15 years old, putting books away at the library across the street after school, like earning $5.50 an hour, that was minimum wage back then. That'll date me a little bit. $5.50 an hour. It was, it was a little difficult, but not really difficult to give a little off the top. It was like $5.50 an hour. But a few years later, when I worked for my uncle's HVAC company and I was making like real money, it was a little harder. It was a little harder to part with that money and say, I, I, God, Dad, you want me to give first and then save money and then whatever's left I get to live on? Like that doesn't sound liberating to me. That doesn't sound like it offers a lot of freedom to me. 
And I struggled through that. For a lot of years, I struggled through that. And, and I tried to flip it, right? Because what sounds liberating is if we live first and we spend all the money we want on ourselves and then we save if there's anything left over and then maybe perhaps when I'm feeling guilty or, you know, I'm driving down the street and somebody, you know, comes and knocks on my window and it looks like they're in need and I didn't have a chance to pull away before he got there, so now I'm stuck. Maybe then I'll give. Maybe when the church collects a special offering. Maybe at Christmas, then at that time I'll give. And I struggled through that. And I can tell you now why this is so important, because I lived the other way, and I lived the way that I thought would give us freedom. I, I lived first, and I saved second, and then I gave whenever I could. And I've experienced what I thought was freedom is actual bondage, because it got me into debt, and it got me to a place where I lived, and I consumed all of my money, because I felt like it was for me. And then years later, I flipped that paradigm, and I went back to what my dad said, and I learned how to give, and how to save, and how to live. And I experienced what true liberty is. I don't need that. I'm not connected. It's, it doesn't hold, like, control me. I control it. You see, the perfect law really does provide freedom. How about this one? How about forgiveness? I mean, forgiveness, it just sounds like everyone says forgiveness is so liberating. And then when you're the person who has to forgive, it doesn't feel very liberating, does it? I mean, it's hard. Essentially, I'm saying, I know you did something wrong against me. I know you hurt me, and I'm going to let you off the hook. Like, where's the justice in that? How do I get even? Where's the payback? See, but God wants us to forgive. Do we forgive because the Bible says to forgive? No, we forgive because God, through Christ Jesus, forgave us. And in the perfect law, there's freedom. How about this one? How about sexual purity? I mean, that in and of itself, that's not liberating, is it? Right? The, the liberation movement was the exact opposite of that. But here's why sexual purity is so liberating. Because when, when we aren't sexually pure, when we have uh, numerous partners, people that we don't connect with, here's what, essentially what we're saying. We're saying, I'm going to take advantage of you for my benefit. I'm going to create a regret for you and a regret for every uh, future relationship you'll have for my benefit, for my sake. Am I loving my neighbor as I would love myself? Am I loving that person as Jesus loved me? No. So Jesus is saying, it has nothing to do with me being mad at you. Don't not do this because you're worried about God like condemning you or being hard on you. Don't do this because you're creating a regret for them and for every relationship they'll have and every relationship you'll have. Don't do this because it creates regret because it values you more than it values them. Love them like I loved you. Be willing to sacrifice from yourself for them. And besides this, on this side of that experience, we know this, don't we? It's that experience doesn't bring romance. Exclusivity brings romance. When exclusivity and romance happen in a relationship, that relationship grows, and that relationship experiences freedom, and that relationship experiences liberty. Because the perfect law gives freedom. And I know that's hard for us. And I know we see these things and we think, but it's just a bunch of rules and, and it's, it's hard for me to do those things. But at the end, what we experience is freedom. See, here's what we don't often realize in the middle of these seasons is that every season is connected. Right? We kind of face our seasons and we think, well, I'll, I'll fix this when I get there and I'll change that when I get married and I'll stop doing that when I get to that job. No, no, no. They're all connected. 
where you are now and where you're going in this next phase or the phase after that or the phase after that are all connected. And what you do now matters for this next phase and the phase after and the phase after. They're all connected. So here's what James says. But whoever, and here's the whole verse in its entirety. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they had heard, not forgetting what they had watched, not forgetting what they listened to, not forgetting what they read, but doing it, then the payoff and the promise. They will be blessed in what they do. And there's this little Greek thing happening here that I need to kind of explain for you because we see that and we think, oh, I'm just going to be blessed and I'm going to have all this money and all this. Like, that's not what James is saying there. He said, really, when we're talking about blessing, we're talking about happiness. And we're talking about being happy in what they do, about being happy in the, in the, the doing, in doing what the Scripture says, in doing what God says, in practicing that perfect law that gives freedom. In doing that, you can experience true happiness. You can experience the freedom that makes you happy. See, the habit of doing will make you happy. The habit of doing it now, of doing what the scripture says, of hearing it, and not like leaving it for years and years and the next season or the next phase, but saying, I'm going to do that right now. The habit of getting into that habit, of doing it and doing it when you hear it, will make you happy. And it will provide freedom. It's one of those extraordinary things that no one can explain. But the truth is, you talk to somebody who's been there, you talk to somebody who does that, and they'll tell you that's where the joy is. They'll tell you that's where the freedom is. You see, being a doer now is, being, is preparation for being a doer later. If you're not a doer now, you say, oh, you know, when I get there, I'll do it. When, when, when I get there, I'll do this. When I hit that next phase, then I'll take care of that. The truth is you're never going to take care of it because if you're not doing it now, you're not preparing yourself for doing it later. But if you are a doer now and preparing for that season Later, when that season comes, you're already a doer. And you'll do again, and you'll do again, and you'll do again. And you'll experience the freedom and the happiness that comes with it. One of the other things my dad taught me when he opened the scriptures, and this is one of those things that, that was just kind of a hallmark of his life, and a hallmark even, even of my family's life, was this. And this isn't his words. I've kind of put my words around this. He said, God takes full responsibility for the life that is wholly devoted to him. That is, you can gaze and you can make adjustments. You can look in the mirror and you continue to make those refinements. You continue to make those changes. And when you continue to do that, when you are completely devoted to him, God takes care of the rest. You can be still and you can let God do it. Because when you are fully devoted to him, when you look in that mirror, when you gaze intently, when you see the things that God's saying, here's where I want you to make a change. Here's something I don't think is fitting right. Here's something you really need to change before it leads to disaster. And you see those things, and instead of saying, huh, and walk away, but you look at it, and you look at it, and you look at it until you say, that's it. i got to change. When you do that, when you live that way, God takes full responsibility for that life. That's how you can live in preparation for what's coming ahead, in preparation for that next season, whatever that might be for you. A life fully devoted to God, God will take responsibility for. There's a, an interesting verse in Matthew. This is gonna, we'll, we'll hit this and then we'll kind of wrap up our message with a few questions. This is from Jesus. Jesus is kind of teaching the same thing with a very interesting illustration. I'm sure it's one that you've heard before many times. But he says this in, in Matthew 7. He says, therefore, everyone, which is all of us, again, everyone who does this, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, 
That's anybody who hears and does. Not just listens to, not just watches, not just uh, reads, but anyone who hears and does is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And you, you probably know the rest, right? And the rains come down, and the floods come up, and the rains come down, and the floods come up. You know how that verse goes. You might even know the hand motions to it. The rain came down, the streams rose, and it blew and it beat against the house. Yet, yet, it did not fall. Why? Because it had its foundations on the rock. You know what Jesus was teaching you and me? The way you lay a solid foundation for your life is by being a doer, not just a listener, but by becoming a doer. If you are a doer now, you'll be a doer later. The scripture tells us that I wish you'd rather be a doer of the word than simply a listener of the word. What good is it to hear? What good is it to look in the mirror and never make a change? What good is it to hear week in and week out messages and teachings and watch online? Maybe you're watching online now and you just watch online and you watch online, but you never make a change in your life. What good is it? James says you're deceiving yourself. So here's two questions I want to leave you with, and then we'll wrap up in prayer. Here's the first one. What are you doing now that you shouldn't be doing? That you tell yourself, well, I won't do that later. What are you doing now that you know you shouldn't be doing, and you just keep telling yourself, you know, when I get there, when I get married, when I get my job, when I transition to that city, when, when my kid goes to school, then, I, you know, then I'll stop doing those things. Stop deceiving yourself. Here's another one. What are you not doing now? What are you not doing now that you should be doing? And you tell yourself, ah, I'll start later. Yeah, I'm going to have more time. That next phase. When the grass gets a little greener. Can I be direct? Stop fooling yourself. Stop deceiving yourself into thinking that someday it's going to get easier. That someday you're going to be a doer. If you're not a doer now, you're not going to be one later. So do now. Make the changes. Make the adjustments. Look in the mirror and look intently and gaze until you see what needs to change and then make the change. And when you do that, James says, you will be blessed in all you do. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this scripture. I thank you for these incredible words uh, by James, but by the brother of Jesus. How amazing is it to get to read what he would say about living and about preparing. I pray that you would prepare in us, God, the changes that need to be made so that as we listen and as we read and as we, we kind of look into that mirror uh, and see the things that need to change, that you would give us the wisdom to see what needs to change and the courage to do it because it's hard, God, and, and it's uncomfortable to make these changes. But I pray you would help us do that. And I pray as we begin to do that, as we begin to make changes, as we begin to, to, to change ourselves and, and see the things that need to shift, God, I pray you would bless us as you said you would, that we, in all that we do, we would experience that blessing. I thank you for every person here, and I pray that you would bless them and that you would be with them and that you'd bring them back next week for part two of Pack Your Bags. In Jesus' name, amen.